Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hey everyone, so before we get into today's episode, I just wanna tell you about a great opportunity. You see, we've had a massive interest lately in learning a second language, and I do a lot of my language training with my very good friend, Ollie Richard. We've been friends for three or four years now, and he's been on my program, and I've been on his program, and he spoke at my conferences, and I've spoke at his conferences, and he really is a genius. His techniques for teaching languages are just out of this world. He actually makes it fun and enjoyable. He was one of the main drivers for me rekindling my interest in Spanish. And under his tutelage and his advice and using his programs, I went from really crummy Spanish to quite fluent in a really short amount of time. So if you are looking to learn a second language or maybe even a third language, what I want you to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language forward slash language, and it's gonna redirect you to some of all these best courses out there in the world. And there's some special promotions going on, some special opportunities for subscribers of my podcast. So I hope you take us up on this offer and go and check it out. That's expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language to get the best resources in the world for learning a second language. Okay, let's get into today's episode. Enjoy. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest is a linguist, teacher, and author, and has spent 20 years developing a guaranteed method to help you master a foreign language anywhere. He is the host of the popular podcast, Language Mastery, and it is available on all podcasting apps. In his program, The Seven-Step Roadmap to Japanese Fluency, he says that you'll learn how to create a highly effective immersion environment anywhere in the world. I'm super excited to get into this one. Please welcome to the show, John Fotheringham. John, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I'm really excited about this one. We ended up getting connected through a mutual acquaintance and about something completely different. And I saw your name. I saw Fotheringham and I was like, I know you. I listened to your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I got to get you on my show. I've got to get you on my show. I think I've listened to at least 40, 50, 60 episodes of your podcast. So I'm a big fan of your work. Wow. That's almost all of them. So that's, yeah, I'm honored to hear that. Thank you. My pleasure. So why don't we take a minute and kind of walk us through your backstory? How did you get interested in foreign languages and becoming an expat and all of these types of things? I want to dig into all of this. Uh, So it was kind of accidental. 
I originally was studying industrial design of all things in university, but I happened to take an intro linguistics class a couple of years in actually my degree and absolutely just fell in love. And I thought I, I got to do this for my life. This is just too fascinating. So I, I changed degrees to linguistics three years in to university, basically started over. There was hardly any overlap between the two. And then as part of that, I started learning Japanese. Uh, you had to pick one language to focus on. So that's the one I decided, you know, and just an easy one, you know, something I think I'm kidding. Of course, yeah. <laughs> um, I just, and I also dabbled a little in Mandarin Chinese uh, in university. And then after I graduated, I went to Japan uh, as part of the JET program, which some of your listeners might be familiar with. It's a government sponsored program where they place you as an assistant language teacher in a junior high or a high school somewhere in Japan. And that's kind of how my my expat journey started. We can, I'm sure, get into the the rest of it later on. So did you, so you actually went over as an English teacher and then from there, Correct. okay, okay. Yeah. So it started, there's in that program, there's two different positions. One is an assistant language teacher, which I did the first year. Other position, which is called a coordinator for international relations. And if you can speak enough Japanese, you can then work in a government office. And so my second year I applied and I got that job by the skin of my teeth. I mean, basically I got to Japan with broken Japanese. And in that first year of living in a pretty rural area where I had not many options, if I wanted to a social life, it was in Japanese. And so that's a great way, by the way, if you want to force yourself to get fluent fast. So, so I did, and I, I had enough Japanese. I wouldn't say it was perfect, still isn't, um, far from, but I had enough ability then to, yeah, to work for the government. And that was, it was pretty wild. I mean, it was uh, pretty intense at times in translation you know, there was a, a time when a delegation came to the prefecture to go to a cancer research center. And I show up the morning of, and they said, okay, John, today you're going to be the interpreter. They're doing a PowerPoint presentation on the latest cancer findings at the, the research center. So I've got the little mic, you know, and the thing in my ear, and I'm trying to simultaneously interpret what they're saying. Stuff I understand it was in English, let alone in Japanese. So that, you know, that kind of thing was pretty intense. Well, there's one thing being able to speak a language well enough so you can order your dinner and maybe get directions or something like that. There's another being a translator for, you know, medical procedure stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty big delta between those two things. And yeah. yeah. So what year was this that you first headed over to Japan? So that was 2003. I went to Japan. I was there in 2005. So just two years, a long time ago, but it was a, had a profound impact on my life. I, I still completely in love with Japanese culture. I try to get back as often as I can, hoping now that travel's opening up that maybe my wife and I can go visit. She's never been. So that would be quite, quite a fun, uh, you know, reunion. So I want to get into your method for learning languages in a little bit. Let's kind of focus first on the expat story, because not only did you live in Japan, but you've also lived in other countries. So why don't you kind of tell me about those experiences as well? Sure. Yeah. So definitely living abroad that first time it, it planted a, a seed or, you know, I got, I got addicted to that, that experience of going to a new place where you, you're not familiar with the language. You're not, or at least not completely familiar, not familiar with the culture. You know, I just, I, I'm a neophiliac. I love new experiences, new places, new people. They're actually, is that the actual word for that? I don't know. As a linguist, I should know that, but <laughs> <laughs> it's like, Ooh, that sounds like, maybe that sounds like me. I'm not sure. I'm sure people will, will correct us in the comments somewhere if, if it's wrong. <laughs> anyway, sure. It's, we'll call it a neologism if it's not a real word. So yeah. So after Japan, uh, I came back to the States for a bit, 
which by the way, reverse culture shock is totally a thing. And it was, I'd heard people talk about that, but I was so shocked to actually experience myself to, to feel strange in my home country. It just, it was really a weird thing. Also trying to remember like, wait, am I on the right side of the road or not? Like, cause you get used to driving on the left side in Japan and then you come home and you automatically go back to drive on the right side. But the fact it's so automatic, you kind of question yourself. And that's sort of analogous to everything, how you live your life. You know, you kind of go on autopilot a lot of times and then you kind of wait, wait a minute, am I? Yeah, you start to second guess yourself a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Is that right? I don't know. But I, I was definitely jonesing for another hit of that, that expat sweet, sweet drug, you know? <laughs> and it was about six months, I think, after being back, I had an opportunity to go to Bangladesh, actually, of all places. Okay, so pause for a second. How do you get an opportunity to just randomly go to Bangladesh? I mean, out of all the countries in the world, that's a kind of a random one. It is, and it's a it's an amazing place. I'm really glad I went. So it was actually through my dad. He's a serial entrepreneur in the telecom industry, and he got hired to lead an expat. I'm sorry, not expat, an outsource management team of expats. Uh, there was a a new telecom startup there that was really struggling to get off the ground. They poured a bunch of money into the company. It just wasn't going anywhere. And so they found my dad through a mutual acquaintance. He put together a team to go over there basically and help this company get off the ground, get systems built, hire the right people. And then we would you know, make our exit. And even though I didn't really have much experience in that world, he knew I had experience living abroad, learning languages, kind of building a cultural bridge between the teams. And so that's exactly what I did. I, I was kind of the glue that sort of helped pull the company together. You know, I was the only one on the team that made any effort to learn Bengali, which interestingly, the word order is the same as Japanese. It's subject, object, verb. So in terms of getting your brain wrapped around it, it was a little easier than it would have been otherwise because word order is one of the kind of the trickier things to train your brain to get used to, which side note, learning Mandarin Chinese as an English speaker is easier in that regard because it's subject, verb, object for the most part. Okay. So it takes less mental gymnastics. I speak fluent Spanish now, and I still catch myself putting the descriptive word in the wrong order, you know, like every single day. And people are always correcting me. It's a deep groove. It's a deep yeah. groove to, to undo. <laughs> well, I, I remember learning that in like with habit formation. I think it's the same thing with, with languages because languages in a way are kind of a habit, like a meta habit. But you don't ever unlearn. You don't ever forget a previous habit or a previous linguistic pattern. You build a deeper groove next to it. And so your English groove of word order is so deep, it's going to take, you know, you'll probably never get to a point where, where the Spanish groove is deeper, even though you're fluent and can, totally fine, I'm sure, in, in most, most situations. So that's a funny thing. First language interference is a, a hell of a thing. Interesting. Okay. Continuing on with Bangladesh. So first of all, how long were you in the country? And then like, what was your experience like? Like, did you enjoy it? Did you have fun? I mean, I've not been to Bangladesh. I've been to other areas in that region, but my understanding it is an extraordinarily poor country with a lot of problems with poverty. And yes, hundred percent. Yeah. So I was there six months. It felt like a lot longer. You can take from that what you want. <laughs> <laughs> But again, I'm, I'm so grateful I had that experience. If you've been to India, there's definitely a lot of similarities in culture. I mean, they're neighbors. And even there's, you know, the eastern part of India 
is called West Bengal. And so there's a lot of cultural overlap there. It's extremely poor, but there's also massive rapid growth. So you have extreme opulent wealth juxtaposed with extreme abject poverty, which is a really wild and often heartbreaking thing to see. And, you know, I living there, I mean, I made, I made good money even by American standards there. And so I definitely was living high on the hog. In fact, I think today that's the most money I've made anywhere in the world was that period. Yeah, that's got to be a weird kind of thing to get your head around. You go to a country and you're making the most amount of money in your entire life. But at the same time, it's probably the poorest country that you've ever been to. I mean, I can't think of any countries. Like I've traveled a lot and at least by reputation, Bangladesh is really poor. So that's got to be kind of this weird experience to go through and to get your head around, you know, how do you deal with that situation and you see this poverty and then at night you're going to a restaurant and eating, you know, a beautiful dinner or having a nice drink or something. Exactly. You know, we had a palatial palace-like apartment provided for us by the company. We had a driver, we had a cook, we had a maid. I mean, I've never had that anywhere else. Like that was, that was it. Yeah, you're certainly not having that in Japan unless you're. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. Not unless you want to go broke real fast. But yeah, I, it, it, yeah, I still don't. I mean, years later, this was 2006. So, I mean, fast forward, what, 15 years. I, I still don't quite have it in my head where I can make sense of it, where I have like a clear idea of what it was or what it meant. And I, I never really did figure out how to deal with yeah, to rectify these things. The poverty and seeing the suffering. Yeah, because I felt I, I'm kind of an empath. I mean, I, 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 when I see suffering, I kind of feel like I have to do something. This is my job to fix this. But it's one of those situations where it's so endemic, so widespread, so ubiquitous. You will quickly go crazy or get depressed if you if you try to take it all on yourself. So, you know, little things that you kind of figure out. I'm sure some of your listeners, if they've lived in a place like this or traveled, you figure out sort of ways to do small acts of, of charity that don't draw attention to you. Cause that's the other thing is I don't, I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be about them. I don't want to make a big ruckus about it because that's also not safe. If you find yourself, if you have like a handful of cash you're taking out in public, that's a really risky thing to be doing. And if you give money to somebody that's begging on the street, for example, especially a child, the money's not going to them. It's going to their handler and their handler. I don't want to stereotype, but often the child was somebody who was abducted or kidnapped or sold into basically slavery by that handler or somebody that they work with. And so you're kind of feeding the machine that you're trying to stop. So what I would do is I would have some kind of edible something, you know, small candies or food that I could just give to them and they could gobble up right there. So they have some modicum of temporary joy for a moment. I figure that's, that's something you can do. So it's a difficult situation because you end up, I think in a lot of instances, you end up encouraging the child to bag, where if it becomes not profitable, if the most profitable thing for them to do is to go to school and or work or do something productive, then that's what they're going to gravitate towards. If right. the most profitable they thing they can do is to bag. So it, it is this, like, I'm not saying I have the answer. I don't have the answer. I don't, I don't have the answer. I'm saying it's a tricky thing to deal with. I mean, I've traveled extensively through very poor countries in Africa, in Central America 20 years ago, going through Honduras or El Salvador and stuff 20 years ago. It's like, geez. I mean, the stuff I saw was, yeah, just hard to get your head around for sure. Yeah, it's heartrending. You know, and then it does also, and this is a broader thing, but 
going abroad, I'm sure you can relate, you start to appreciate and be grateful for some of the things in your home country that maybe you took for granted or that you may have, you may even look down upon or despised some, some aspects of it. I mean, when I left the U S in 2003, you know, it was the Bush years. It was, there was a lot of stuff going on where I was, I was not feeling very proud fast forward many years and no, the U S is far from perfect. And like every country we have our challenges, but we have a lot of things we've done, right. I think. And you realize that I think once you've gone other places where they don't have those things, right. They might have other things, right. That we, we struggle with things like in Japan, Korea, Taiwan, you know, they take care of their elderly really well. We don't do that so well here. You know, we ship them off to a home and kind of forget about them for the most part, which is also heartbreaking. Well, I think that in a lot of Asian cultures, the family is number one. My wife is from mainland China and I see the connection with her family and also her friends and their connection with their parents and grandparents and everything like that. It's a different sense of responsibility and it's a different, it's just a different dynamic. I think that in a lot of those instances, the families don't have a retirement plan. The children is the retirement plan. Right. <laughs> it's an obligation. It's known from day one. But then the parents are giving anything and everything to the kids until they finish university. And even when they get married, they're giving them everything. With us, I mean, in Western culture, it's like, you're 15, get a job. Like, you want to buy something? Get to work and earn your own money. So it's it's this different type of dynamic. Which builds independence and independent thinking, creative thought, which again, is that's one of those things about North American culture that I really appreciate now that from a very young age, we, we develop a lot more autonomy than that I saw in a lot of East Asian countries, where, as you say, that, you know, they're given everything, but also they're not, the one thing they're not given is choice. Usually even well into middle age or even older ages, it's like you are, you know, you're going to work for this company. You're going to take care of us. You're going to do this. You're going to make us proud. There's kind of this misconception, I think, that Western cultures are more egoic and Eastern cultures are, are more selfless. I'm like, no, no, no. Humans are ego machines. It's just the ego applies to the group in East Asian cultures where the ego applies to the individual in Western cultures, You know, which both have their pros and cons. Neither is good, bad, but... Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. I mean, I lived in Singapore and I saw these types of things all of the time. I mean, especially with this young people who basically couldn't take care of themselves in any fashion. I mean, everything was done for them and the decisions were made for them. And I mean, forget about ever getting an apartment or going off to university or that type of a lifestyle. I mean, like you lived with your parents until you were 33 years old and you could get your own HDB flat or you got married. And if you were 29 or 30 years old and you got married, that was your escape. Otherwise you were living with your parents until you were like 40. I mean, it's just the way it is. It's like blow my brains out. I don't, I don't want anything to do with that. <laughs> I left at 17 years old and that was perfect for me. I mean, I like my independence. Likewise. So anyway, so I think these kind of things you, you really come to appreciate the difference. It's hard to know what is normal or what is different until you've experienced something else that's not the same as that. And so I, I think that was one of the most powerful impacts of going abroad each time was it was another mirror, another lens to realize what is it to be an American or what is it to be North American or Okay, so I have a question for you. When you started doing this traveling and you started living abroad in foreign countries, 
Did you ever feel like, you know, the way that we're doing it as North Americans is quote unquote better or the way that they're doing it is like worse? Because I see people that fall into this, but now after 20 years, I'm going to guess if you ever did have those thoughts and feelings, you probably have different types of thoughts and feelings now. Yes. That, yeah, you definitely go through that period. Well, okay, with Japan, for example. I mean, prior to going to Japan, you know, I'd spent years studying the language. I had numerous Japanese friends at university. Our school had a lot of exchange students. So I had a lot of chances to make friends with Japanese people. You know, I had, I was watching anime and reading manga, which interestingly, most people get into Japanese because they already like anime and manga. I was not that. I got into anime and manga because I wanted to improve my Japanese. So it was kind of, cart horse situation. Anyway, but I, I had Japan up on this pedestal in my mind as this like, you know, magical country on the hill. And that's never a good idea to do that with, <laughs> with any person, any country, nothing, <laughs> uh, because you're going to have your dreams dashed, right? At least for a while. And so I definitely went through that cycle in Japan where I got there and I was like, oh, it's amazing. Everything's great. And then you get over the initial high and you go into, well, it tends to also correlate, I think, with time of year, got into winter, you're lonely, you're in the middle of nowhere, you're starting to see some of the cracks in the facade. And they can, I think, very easily plunge into the other extreme where you're like, everything here's messed up. Like nothing's right. Nothing's great. I miss home. Like, and then you kind of come full circle and it goes all the way around. You realize like, okay, there's these things about this culture and country, which are beautiful and I'll always love. And there's these things which drive me bonkers, but <laughs> it's always going to be a kind of a, you know, a mix, right. Of the two, it's going to be a soup with a fly in it. That's just, that's the way, <laughs> way life is. But the things specifically, I, I can say there are some things that, for example, about Japan or Taiwan, which I lived in later, we can talk about later, the education system. So having taught there and seeing how they, how they actually teach things, especially something like a language, it's really inefficient and ineffective as anyone knows who's if you're Japanese and you're listening, you know, you know, you you've gone through that system and you realize like, Oh, I studied English every day for 10 years and can't order a coffee, you know, to save my life. It's not your fault. It's not, it's not their fault. They, they didn't not try hard enough. It's that the system and the method is highly ineffective. They, you know, they treat languages as the subject to be memorized and tested somehow assuming that that'll somehow translate into being able to have a conversation like this. It just, just doesn't work. Well, I don't think that there's many things in the world that actually lend themselves very well to rote. I mean, rote memorization is just a horrible method for learning things. I had a terrible time with anything in school with rote. And now that's, I mean, I've, I've developed my own techniques for learning anything and everything, whether that's tax law or immigration or, or languages. I mean, I'm not trying to memorize it. It's just a, a bad way to go about it. It is. Yeah. 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 At best, I think some people can get by with that method, but those are the exceptions. The vast majority of people, I mean, I, it's hard to think of a worse way to go about learning a language than just trying yeah. to force feed it into your brain, yeah. you know, cause our, our brains don't care that we think it's important. The brain's going to decide if it's important. And how does the brain decide if something's important enough to spend all this energy and physical resources to create new neural connections, to wrap those with myelin, to speed up the, the transfer information? You know, it's a very expensive process. So it's not going to invest that unless it decides 
this is important, you know, for probably one of the four F's, right? You have feeding, fighting, fleeing, and mating. (laughs) (laughs) See what I did there? Yeah. If it doesn't relate to one of those things or our capacity to do one of those four things, it's probably not going to spend the time. So I don't care how many times you look at a flashcard or try to memorize a a specific kanji. It's not going to do it. So to that end, what you can do is you can engineer into your language study or whatever you're learning, it's tax law or whatever else, you can add in elements of those four Fs. You know, you can, you know, this is kind of controversial, but like you can sexualize the content in your mind, you know, because our brains attach onto sexual content. Like I am trying to come up with an idea on how I could do that with tax law. I'm not sure that the, (laughs) 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 I'm not sure that it's going to be a very pleasant sight in my mind's eye, but (laughs) well, there's, there's something I could think of, but it's not just the government just. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's where I was going, but, but there's other things, you know, there's like, I don't know if familiar with Tony Bazan, but he is a memory expert. He passed recently, I think sadly, but he talked a lot about how to like attach more emotions and things to things you're trying to memorize, make things huge, make things tiny, make things moving, make things colorful. You add more mental barbs that your brain can then attach onto and you make it more emotionally meaningful and relevant. So then your brain goes, okay, this must be important because there's a lot of emotion attached to this. And then it'll stick without even really trying. We had Anthony Metevier on the podcast and he does some amazing work. And I'm a big fan of his types of things. I always found it was very interesting because he called his program memorization. And for me, memorization is a dirty word. I mean, for me, I think of public school and like I said, wrote. And then, but when you start to learn about his techniques and what he does, it's actually not really memorization. I mean, he's doing things that you're talking about, like putting things in context, attaching meaning to it and anchoring things that you already know and understand. And he teaches memorization for languages as well as for tax law and everything else. I mean, if you're a scientist and you need to do formulas, it's like... Right. doesn't matter. Yeah. he. I know one of the things he's known for is the sort of memory palace idea where you put put different things into a, I say physical with air quotes, but in your mind, you imagine things in a space and that's just yet one more layer of having something to attach to. You have a construct, you have a context in your brain where it's easier to recall it. Because that's often the problem with recall of something is there's no trigger. There's nothing to find, you know, you're trying to find that file on your hard mental hard drive and you, there's no tag, there's no, you know, it's not in the right folder. We, we don't have a search function, unfortunately, other than just emotional memory. Uh, but yeah, his stuff is fantastic. Okay. So in Spanish, I think it's not so bad because there's so many cog- cognates, I think that's called. Cognates, yeah. Yeah, cognates, yep. where they really help you, I mean, to anchor these types of things. Like, okay, so you have those straight off the bat, but then there's so many words that are technically not cognates, but they're, you can make things sound Spanish. Right. Now, Japanese, I'm going to guess there is very, very little of this. So like you're really going from like scratch. Yes and no. So su- surprisingly with Japanese. So in Japanese, you have uh, m- historically much of the vocabulary has been borrowed from China over, over centuries and centuries. So that's Sino Japanese words. So those, yeah, you don't really have any any familiar territory to go by. But since especially World War II, 
Japan has borrowed tens of thousands of English words into Japanese. So they're, they're called foreign loan words, gaidaigo. And these words, sometimes the meaning's very, very different. And so you can have some like false friends or like with Spanish, you know, trying to say you're embarrassed and you say you're pregnant, right? So that, that can happen. But for the most part, if you're trying to say a word in Japanese and you don't know what the word is, you can say the English word you know in a Japanese accent, okay. the Japanese pronunciation, and you'll probably be understood. Wow. It's a pretty cool hack, if you want to call it that. Or So a lot of those words, like technical terms or like medical terms and those types of things, opposed to just like everything. Yeah, you would be you would expect it to be more like modern technology or things, but yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, but it's actually almost any. I mean, table or you know they say table. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they had a word. They had a Sino-Japanese word from part from China, but now most of the time they just say table instead of table. So I mean, drive shaft, right? Drive shaft. Like there's almost anything. It probably has a, a foreign loan word. But here's a, another little subtle nuance bit of this. Even if they don't use a foreign loan word for a given term, because almost everybody has learned English in Japan on paper, and because when they're learning English, they write little pronunciation guides above the English word using katakana, the, one of the alphabets in Japanese, that's a really bad habit for them because they're not actually learning the proper English pronunciation. But for us trying to communicate with them, if you say that word in the Japanified way, they're, they're likely to know it, even okay. if they don't use that word, because that's how they studied it. I've been to Japan probably 15 times. I had no idea that I could have just tried to make things sound <laughs> Japanese, and I probably yeah. would have gotten by a little bit better than I did. A little better. Yeah. It's not a foolproof plan. I'm, I'm course, not making any claims that you're going to be fluid or like have conversations about, you know, Kantian philosophy. No, like this is like, you want to get the thing you want at the store. Very simple stuff. Now it does require you learning the correct Japanese pronunciation though. Like you're going to need to know the, yeah. And know all the hiragana and katakana, the alphabet in, in Japanese. So you know what sound and also, it does take a bit of familiarity to know, okay, this English word is going to probably sound like this. Because it's not 100%. It's not a, it's, there's not a perfect pattern that if you memorize this rule, you'll always know how it's properly pronounced. Because sometimes they go by pronunciation. Sometimes they go by spelling. It, it all depends. Sometimes the foreign loan word is something from German or French or another Romance language. For, for the first year I was in Japan, I kept hearing people talk about a part-time job in Japanese is called arubaito. And baito is from, I forget, how, I don't know how to pronounce it in German, but it's a German word. Okay. And so I was like, what English word is baito? I was thinking like, is it from part, pato? And then I got, I don't know. Turns out it's a German word. So you would never know. But anyway, for the most part, that's a pretty slick advantage for native English speakers. You kind of hit the ground running with a pretty big vocabulary out of the gate. I am well surprised to hear that. That's, I had no idea. So, okay. So when you first started learning Japanese, what was your techniques, like your, your study habits, your skills for, for putting these types of things? And, you know, how has that developed, I suppose, over the years? Yeah, it's changed a lot. So I definitely would not advocate doing what I did in the beginning, at least not completely. I did. I had a lot of bad habits. Okay. So let's, let's hear the the good, the, 
the the good bad and good, ugly, bad, the ugly. Yeah, yeah of the of the first stuff and then kind of go on from there you know what have you learned and and what do you recommend to people at this moment so like i think most students i started off doing a lot of the rote stuff that we already you know that horse has been beaten pretty pretty badly already i don't want to belabor that point anymore oh i'll do it i'll do it i just i yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you kick that horse while it's gone. yeah we're gonna get called by the PETA or whatever about beating this horse. So yeah, a lot of rope memorization, especially when I started learning kanji, I started off just doing what everyone does, which is you get a piece of paper out and you write a character over and over and over and over and over. Yeah. And you think it reminds me of oh, Bart Simpson on the chalkboard, you exactly. know, like I will not tell lies. I will not tell yes. lies or something. Yeah. And then you do that and you go, don't, you know, because yeah. you turn the paper <laughs> over and you got nothing. You, you try to write it again. And if you don't have a visual something to jog your memory you have nothing to go by there's again there's there's no clue there's no tag there's no no barb that you have because our visual memory is actually not very great for stuff like this so luckily at my university they actually had a class dedicated just to learning kanji and they used a book called remembering the kanji which was written by a guy named james heisig uh he's actually a philosophy and religion teacher in nagoya japan but kind of what he's most known for outside of his actual discipline is this book he wrote about how to learn kanji. And it completely revolutionized how I was going about it. So there's lots of great kanji techniques and methods and apps and stuff now. So this is just one of many that you could use, but that's what I used and I, I still recommend it. Basically what he does, instead of you trying to remember a random pile of strokes, you break the characters down into little chunks and then you make a story with those chunks. Each of those little chunks become kind of a character in a mental story. Well, that's how Chinese writing started, isn't it? It Yes, yes, in many ways. Now, I, I do have to clarify, I'll put my linguist hat on again here and say like most non-Chinese or, or Japanese speakers think that kanji or char Chinese characters are pictographs. That's actually not really true. There's, there's a very small number of them that are actual true pictographs that represent a picture of something in, in real life. Most of them, about 80%, if I recall, they're not to get too technical, but they're idiophonetic compounds. So one chunk tells you what the meaning is ish. And one chunk tells you kind of how it's pronounced, Okay, which is actually kind of cool. Cause then if you know, Oh, it means something about a woman. And I know it's probably pronounced something like this because it has this phonetic radical, but enough of that. That's too technical. No, I love the technical stuff. By the way, for everyone who's listening, when I messaged John, we've, we've been corresponding for a couple of months now. I was like, I know your podcast. It is the most technical podcast on the internet <laughs> for learning a language. You go into so much depth. It's not like, it's not surface level stuff, everyone. It's, it's like, he goes really in depth and your guests are amazing and can talk technically about how the language works and the methods and stuff like that. So let's go as technical as you want. I will also make a side note for anyone who's listening. What we're talking about in this context is Japanese and Chinese, but the techniques for learning Japanese and Chinese can also be applied to French or Spanish or to German or whatever language might be important to you guys. So we're using one language as a to keep things in context because that's what John's experience was in, but actually the techniques apply to all languages. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's really important to clarify. Yeah, and especially like the stuff I'm talking about now with learning a non-Latin script, you could definitely apply what I'm about to say to the Cyrillic alphabet, to Korean, 
to Arabic, like any, any non-Latin script, or if the Latin script is not your native writing system, if you're learning that, there are definitely the same similar tricks you can use to try to learn the letters. Luckily, you're only learning 26 with English, which is, you know, relatively easy compared to learning, you know, 2200 kanji in Japanese. But the downside is there's not a one-to-one relationship between English letters and pronunciation. I mean, the letter E, for example, can be pronounced five or six different ways, depending on where it goes in a word, which, oh, I'm so grateful I didn't have to learn that as a, you know, adult learner. So, so yeah, so back to the, the kanji thing. So what what Isaac advocates is this sign of story, this narrative-based approach. And it's so much easier because then in tried, instead of trying to remember the strokes, you're remembering a story. You remember the story. And our brain, the human brains are so, so, so wired for story. That's, we literally have evolved to communicate through stories. And it's so much more, it's easy to remember. It's more compelling it's more fun. I mean, you get to make these like wild little movies in your brain basically. And then to this day, I mean, there are, there are characters that I remember learning. This is back in 2001, 2002, way back in college. I still remember the story. And if I haven't touched Japanese for a while and I go back to it and I'm like kind of struggling to remember a given character, I'll remember the story from over two decades ago. That story is still in there. The strokes have long since evaporated, like which stroke goes where, but then I remember the story and then that triggers the strokes and even the proper stroke order. So it's pretty, it's pretty wild. And it's just so much easier, so much less laborious and boring. And instead of writing a character on a piece of paper, you know, a hundred times, you go through the book, you write it once just to kind of get the, the relative position of stuff right on, on paper. But it isn't about the physical part of writing. It's about the mental creation of the story. Yeah, because I get it. Like I, I, I understand why people want to be able to, you know, just write the same word over and over and over again, and want it to stick. But it just doesn't. I mean, it's just not an effect. It, it seems like it should work, but it doesn't. Exactly. I will say there is a modicum of benefit to the physical movement, especially if somebody's a more. So is that like memory, uh, muscle memory, or anything? I mean, somewhat, I don't, I think it's less the muscle memory. I think it's more that just physically moving your body while doing anything or trying to learn something creates another point of connection. So for example, walking, like if you walk while you're listening to a foreign language podcast, for example, things will tend to stick better than if you're just sitting on the couch listening. And I think part of that's the physical movement. Part of it's, you have more visual stimulus to connect that to, I mean, this phenomenon is pretty well-documented, but like if you hear a song the first time in a given place, when you hear the song again, you'll remember that place. And that can go two ways. Well, I mean, I'm also just thinking as you're speaking about movement. I mean, I used to do martial arts to an extremely high level. I was on Team Canada. I traveled internationally to compete. And I mean, we did the same forms over and over and over again. And that did work for that. I mean, that absolutely worked going through it physically through the movements. So I can kind of understand people's, you know, idea that you have a pen in your hand, you're physically going through it. It should stick. Yeah. That's an interesting point. And I do think I should underscore that repetition is critical. It's just the form of the repetition with something like characters is key. I think the repetition here is more about exposure in meaningful contexts. So yes, once you go through remembering the kanji or something like that, 
and you learn to you know learn the meaning and the writing of all the standard characters then you have to go and read as much as you can you know devour as much reading content as possible because then you're gonna get those reps that way and you're gonna learn to recognize stuff in context and you're gonna so that's kind of that's the physical repetition part of it for reading it's literally your eyes you know seeing these things over and over and over and over again and you're gonna start to also learn the pronunciation of them too because that's one thing people complain about the isaac method you don't learn the pronunciation of the characters you only learn the the meaning and the writing when you go through the the first book but that's by design because his thought was if i if you try to learn the meaning the writing and the pronunciation and compounds of characters all it's just too much it's overwhelming and your brain's going to rebel and sure enough that's usually what happens okay so i have a question about that but before i ask that i think it's pronounced anki what's your opinion on japanese method for anki yeah. So interestingly, Anki is actually Japanese for memorization. Oh, is it really? Memory. Okay. I think of it as a as a method and, and maybe give some some context for people who are not. Sure. So Anki is a it's a spaced repetition flashcard app. And so spaced repetition, for those not familiar, you the app uses this advanced algorithm to decide when to show you given information based on how you've performed with it in the past. So if something's super familiar and easy, you mark it easy, and then you don't get shown it again, or maybe not as often. If you struggle with a given card, then you'll be shown that more frequently and more often and in a shorter interval. The idea being that you want to be, you want to review content and information at this optimal time frame where it's just about to be forgotten. And then you see it one more time, and then it gets implanted deeper and deeper into your long-term memory. That's the theory, at least. I think it makes a lot of sense. I've done it a lot in the past. Recently, we talked earlier about things I've changed, how I do things in the past. I used to do a lot of Anki and a lot of space repetition flashcard work. I more now believe that I don't think it's bad. I do think it can help. I just think that it's boring and it takes a lot of time. I think if you only have a limited amount of time and if you're struggling to stick with language study, which this is probably almost everybody listening. I think you should spend that time reading content that's enjoyable and comprehensible, watching content that's enjoyable and comprehensible, and practicing speaking with a native speaker. If you do those three things, you're going to get fluent. And it's going to be a lot more fun along the way. The flashcards can maybe be a little bit of a supplement to that. You know, They can be your vitamin, your multivitamin, but they shouldn't be the meal. The meal should be immersing yourself in the language as much as possible. Well, okay. So here's another thing. What I noticed when I heard about Anki and I tried it for myself, I ended up spending so much time to create my cards and to build out my deck and find the most important words. I mean, hours and hours and hours trying to do this. And it was like, and all of that time in creating something, I wasn't actually using it. I wasn't, I mean, that wasn't study time. That wasn't practice time. That wasn't right. making Admin. friends. And yeah. Like, it's like I'm exactly. Yeah. And that's why I've kind of moved away from doing it. I mean, I, just a few years ago, I was in this phase where I was watching, there's this great tool called language learning with Netflix, where it creates these supercharged subtitles in Netflix in the browser version. They don't have it in the app, unfortunately, but what it does is it creates, it has the subtitle in the target language, subtitle in your language, 
And then it has a literal translation. So it has these three pieces, which you got to have exposure to the language, which is basically reading practice. You're listening as you read along. So you're connecting the pronunciation and the writing. So with something like Japanese or Chinese, that's extra helpful. And then you see the literal translation. So you're like, oh, okay. So that's how they would say that in that language in the literal way. And the reason I bring this up now, they have the option to export saved words or phrases that you save while watching to Anki. Oh, so you can okay, then make cool. a, a flashcard deck based on authentic content that you've been watching. So it hits all the boxes for me. It's like, it's authentic content. It's comprehensible. It's interesting. You're learning in context and not just isolated words in a list, which is probably only second to rote memorization as like the worst possible way to learn a language. I know. I literally went on. It was like, <laughs> what is the 500 most important words in Spanish? And it's like, you know, try to get these and then copy them over. And then, and then I read from somewhere, oh, you shouldn't be trying to do a word for word translation. You should try to get pictures. So then I'm on like Google images, trying to download pictures and then upload them one by one. That takes forever. <laughs> it does. It does. I mean, it's the picture thing is, is cool. And I, I like, you know, Gabriel Weiner from Fluent Forever. That's kind of part of their method, which I think is great because then you're not creating this intermediate step of translating to your native language. You're creating a direct connection between meaning and sound, which is ideal. But yeah, you're right. It just, it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. And why do that when you can just watch something or read something for enjoyment, which admittedly, you're not gonna be able to do that until you get to kind of an upper beginner intermediate stage. So there is, there is a period of sock where you're going to have to go through some amount of conscious study just to know enough words to be able to then engage with authentic content. But you want to get through that period as quickly as possible and then jump to the, the authentic content. Well, I think in my own life, like I've, I've had milestones over the last two years of learning my Spanish where like when I went in and was starting at the beginning, I, I mean, I tried every different method I could possibly get my hands on. Then I think I found your podcast and Ollie's podcast. We have mutual friend, Ollie Richards. And there are a couple of other podcasts, actual fluency, and started like learning language techniques from polyglots who speak multiple languages. And it was like, there's a lot of similarities. Okay. People might have like some differences, but like you mentioned earlier, like comprehensible input, I mean, is the, the one thing that always comes up over and over and over again. And so it was like, when I found that idea, and I stopped trying to do these memorization techniques that we beat the dead horse on, that was like a big jump for me, you know? And then, okay, I couldn't go straight to Netflix because my language wasn't at that level. But, you know, Ollie does some really good books that are, you know, beginner levels and he uses important words and in context and repeats the word often enough that you get familiar with it. So that was like a another milestone for me. And then piece by piece by piece, it, it builds on that. But yeah, the comprehensible input, trying to read or watch or listen to things that are just a slightly out of your grasp, I think is, it's worked very well for me. Okay, we're just going to take a quick break. 
So if you guys haven't joined Expat Money Forum yet, then I don't know what I need to do to get you guys to go on this. The conversations in this forum are just unbelievable. The networking is fantastic. There's so much things being shared with the group that honestly, it's more than just me. It's more than just this podcast. It has grown to a life of its own. We have over 2,000 people in our private group discussing things like immigration, asset protection, travel, food, culture, history, everything about being an expat and going overseas. There's tons of work being done on Plan B residencies, on different passports. We're even talking about SIM cards, international SIM cards, and the best places to get your internet if you're a digital nomad and you're traveling around the world. There are so many things that are being shared by people who are actually in different countries, who are digital nomads, who are expats, who have gone offshore, and there's just so much there. So I'm really excited about it. I hope you can see that I'm really thrilled about this group because it's just more than I ever expected. And and a massive shout out to you if you are part of the group and you are contributing and helping other people who are looking to get where you are. You are an awesome person. I really, really appreciate it. So if you guys want to get involved, if you want to join the conversation, then go to expatmoneyforum.com or on Facebook directly, you can search for Expat Money Forum. You'll find us there. We should come up on the very first page. And yeah, join the group, join the conversation. Lots happening there. Okay, let's jump back into today's interview. And it works for everybody because that's how we all acquired our first language. You know, we, we weren't taught our native language. I mean, I say that there's an asterisk there, which is, yes, in school, you will learn to write and you'll learn, you know, to polish your, your writing and, and things like that. And you'll expand your vocabulary. But in terms of the actual grammar and pronunciation, you're not taught it and you don't learn it consciously. We acquire it through exposure and practice and repetition. It's a subconscious process. And that's where I think adults mess up is because we have such advanced neural capacity and we've done so many things consciously as adults, we try to apply all that firepower to learning something like a language as if it's this thing we can do consciously and control consciously. And it just doesn't work very well. You know, the analogy is you're trying to learn a sport or a martial art. Right? If you try to read a book on how to do Aikido, you know, it can help maybe a little bit, but you're not going to actually learn it unless you're on the mat throwing and getting thrown, right? <laughs> it's the same thing, the language. Well, and then on that same point, I mean, I don't know how you are with your English grammar. I'm, I'm a professional author. I'm, I'm an author for a living. My grammar in English is like... I have no idea what the English grammar is. Like I have no, I, if someone sat me down and wanted me to explain, I would, I wouldn't even know where to start. Yes. And that's, that's proof that it's subconscious. You know it intuitively. You don't know it consciously and you have to be, this is the irony of all ironies, right? You have to be taught consciously to explain something, you know, intuitively, you know, implicitly. And I did that. So I, when I was in college, I also did TESOL teaching English to speakers of other languages. And I got certified in that. And I learned how English works. I learned the mechanics. I learned the why behind the what. And it's fascinating. And as a linguist, I loved it. I, I ate it up. But when I'm teaching English, one of the things I always have to do, and it takes a lot of repetition with learners, is to convince them that the why is interesting, but it's not necessary. All you need to know is the what. You just need to, to get the what, what, what through like all the things we've talked about, the repetition through comprehensible input. The why will not help you that much 
with the what. Maybe a little. Maybe because again, it's it's maybe more information to attach to the thing you're trying to learn. And so then your brain has more opportunities to remember it and to encode it. But it's not necessary. It really isn't. And it drives me nuts when people think like, oh, if you don't know why something is true, then you don't really know it. I'm like, no, just you're talking about two very different memory systems and different, you know, there's two kinds of memory basically. There's declarative memory and there's procedural memory. And you need both for a language, but the procedural part, the how of it, the, you know, the how to ride a bike is what really matters. And that's the part that most people don't get enough of because they spend all their damn time. And I say, damn, all their damn time uh, <laughs> doing the declarative stuff, memorizing those flashcards we talked about, you know, trying to consciously remember the, the details of it. And they don't get nearly enough time on the procedural side, which is the how. But why do you think that is? Why, why do you think that people gravitate to one side to this? It's easy. It's safe. The procedural part in it, by definition is going to expose you to real time conversations. It's going to, you know, you can't pause a native speaker like you can your Netflix show. You can't look up words you don't know as you go. You know, it's real time. It's messy. It's chaotic. It's terrifying. You're afraid of making mistakes. You're afraid of not understanding them. You're afraid of being misunderstood by them. You know, it's a lot messier, but there's no alternative. You know, you can't skip that suck. You can't, you can't get to fluency by studying alone, unfortunately. Yeah, I see this all the time because I and not just with language learning, but with anything, especially in the entrepreneurial space, I see it all the time. People are so afraid of making mistakes or failing or messing something up that they don't even get going or they waste their time. I mean, I've worked with people and it's like they spend so much time organizing their emails in different folders and drive. And, and it's like, no, like get on the phone and call people and sell something like it's like that's you need to make money like sell 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 and they don't want to do that i mean they want to organize everything and the things that are easy and they can do by themselves they think that they're being productive but they're not really being productive because if they were being productive they would actually score a goal here it's faux productivity and i am so guilty of that i mean again talking about things i did wrong and i've changed my mind or trying to change my my habits about it's, it's doing way too much of that stuff. And that's true in my business. That's true in language learning. That's true in anything I've, I've tried to do in my life. It's resisting the urge to perfect first and then get out and do the thing. It's like, oh, I want to get the perfect system created. And then, then I'll start doing the thing. I want to learn enough vocabulary first, and then I'll start having conversations. But it's like, you're not going to develop those right systems in your business until you have done enough business to know what systems you need. You're not going to learn that vocabulary and those procedural memories until you actually have real communication. So. so do you ever find that by identifying this in yourself at first, that knowing that this is your bias, that you can catch yourself earlier and earlier and earlier as your life, as you mature and get older and go further down this path? I think so. A little bit. It's not like you know something consciously and then you stop doing it. It's like, I mean, in one of my other lives, I was trained in nutrition. And so in fact, where I met my wife, we, we met in our nutrition class. And so I spent about seven years working in the nutrition field. I was a director of education at a nutrition school. I wrote curriculum or curricula, I guess, technically. Um, and so I know a lot about what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat. doesn't mean I always eat what I should eat and don't eat what I shouldn't eat. Obviously not. I mean, I'm a human being and I have, you know, we, we're fallible. 
Yeah, and I like French fries. Leave me alone. (laughs) Exactly. Which, you know, side note on that, it's like we evolved to eat certain things. And one of the kind of, I think, rules of adulthood, as Gretchen Rubin calls it, in this modern world is realizing like to succeed and flourish in our modern world, you have to basically go against almost every instinct that we've evolved to have. You know, it's like, don't eat that. Don't pursue that. You know, it's that four Fs again, right? It's like... (laughs) You know, resisting impulses is like almost a surefire way to succeed now. And, you know, in terms of health, finance, almost everything. Well, I can certainly see that as an expat because, I mean, moving overseas and putting yourself in a situation like you did to go to Japan where you don't know anyone, you don't speak the language, you don't know the culture, you don't know how things are done. The difference is like all the little cultural differences in the country. You have absolutely no idea, but to grow as a human being. You did that and it changed your life and the rewards were massive. But I imagine you were probably pretty uncomfortable. You put yourself in an uncomfortable situation when you first went over there and maybe not even just when you first went over there, but possibly the entire time. (laughs) Yeah, it goes in cycles, right? Because you you start to get comfortable in a certain context or certain way and then a new thing comes along or you expand what, you, you know, your scope of, your experience and then chaos enters again. Yeah. So it's this constant balance between order and chaos, which if you were familiar, so there's the yin yang symbol, right? Has the black, the white with the, the the two paisleys, right? I think that's a really good and profound metaphor for life because you have both sides. You know, you have order and you have chaos. And that little serpentine line in the middle is where you you try to live. It's the balance between the two. You get too much order, it's boring, it's stifling. It's tyrannical. You get too much chaos, right? It's well chaotic, and that's that's not fun either. So it's finding that balance between the two. And I definitely have experienced that in my life with going abroad, or then you know now I live back in the states. You know we're buying a house next year. The, in fact, we've lived here the longest we've lived anywhere in our marriage, and we've only been here two years. Like I think, like you, we've moved around a lot. I mean, almost once a year we we moved. We did full time house sitting for six months when we were paying off the last bit of our debt. And so we were moving house to house to house to house every week or two, which is great, by the way. If people are trying to pay off debt, cut out rent, man. That is a that accelerated our, our debt payoff pretty quick. Um, and it was fun. So we got it, we got to have that adventure of moving around and seeing the country and other places, but it was chaotic. And so having that period of of too much chaos, I think now we're getting into a chapter where we're having a bit more order, you know, starting to lay some roots down, make more local friends. But I already feel that itch of like, ah, miss travel. I miss, you know, I need a little more of that chaos. You know, mix it into the the yin yang here. Variety, the spice of life. Uh Uh-huh. So, okay, so let's let's circle back. We were talking about some of the countries that you have spent time in. Now, you also mentioned Taiwan. So, first of all, let's go into that. And then I have some specific questions about the language learning for the Chinese characters, which will tie things back. You'll see, it'll make sense. (laughs) Okay, I trust you. Yeah, so Taiwan came about also kind of unplanned, or at least it was not a direct path to Taiwan. After Bangladesh, I was kind of ready for my next place. I mean, I, I knew I could go anywhere I wanted. I'd always had a curiosity with China, as well. I think a lot of people that are interested in Japan kind of also are interested in China. And they're very, very different, obviously, but they're both so fascinating and so different from the experience growing up in North America. So 
So I wanted to go to China. So I got a one-way ticket to Shanghai uh, and spent about two weeks there. And I realized it wasn't actually what I was looking for. It wasn't the China I had in my mind was not the China I found. Now it was amazing. It's a fascinating place. And since I was there, I mean, it's, it's continued to explode in, in so many ways and expand and, and evolve. But I, back in the back of my mind, I, I remembered a time I'd visited Taiwan while I was living in Japan, actually. And I had a really good time. And I just, there was something about the place that kind of had its claws in me. And so I decided, okay, I'll go check out Taiwan instead. You know, and I had fully intended to live in China. I, I had brought two suitcases, which was like all I owned at the time. I'm like, I'm going to live in China. I'm going to make it work. No plan, no job, nothing. I just, I was going to kind of show up and just see where the wind blew me. Well, the wind blew me across the strait to Taiwan. <laughs> and I got there and same thing. I thought, okay, maybe I'll just travel around a bit, you know, end up being there almost five years all said and done. Wow. Okay. I, I went there and back a few times, uh, has had different, different careers there, different jobs, but there's just something about Taiwan, which it was what I was looking for. It was and there's a lot of historical reasons for this. So, you know, I was interested in martial arts. I was interested in the, you know, historical Chinese, having learned Japanese, the traditional characters that they use in Taiwan are actually a lot easier, ironically. They're more complex than the simplified ones used in mainland China, but I'm more familiar with them because the characters in Japan are closer to the traditional characters. Yeah, it just, it, I just fell in love with it. I mean, the cost of living is really, really good for, for how high the quality of life is. Mm -hmm. It's a really nice balance point. It's kind of like South Korea is like that too. I think maybe, I don't know if it still is but when I visited South last, Korea is it was very affordable, like surprisingly affordable compared to Japan. Right. I've been exactly. to South Korea 50, 60 times. I used to go, Oh, it's amazing. I lived in the middle East for eight years and I used to do business and I used to have to go over two, three times a month. Plus I would always want to go because my best friend from back home has lived there for probably 15 years. So he would always take me to Itawan or to Gandam or something like that. We would go sing karaoke and have way too much soju and eat Korean barbecue. Oh my God. So good. Yeah. So good, but dangerous, dangerously good. Yeah. Very, very exactly. A lot more affordable than Japan, but still has like a lot of culture and these things. But that's interesting about Taiwan because I've been to I've been to Taipei twice, and I didn't have enough time. I think in either of those trips to really explore or to really get beyond the surface level. So actually, I'm curious your experience when you were living there five years, what your life was like. In many ways, it was exactly what I was hoping for, what I was wanting. Um, so like you, I, I've dabbled in martial arts. Well, you didn't dabble. You went hardcore. I, I was a dabbler. I, I tried lots of different things and I'd always been very interested in some of the traditional Chinese martial arts, you know, things like Xing Yi Chuan, Ba Gua Zhang, Tai Chi Chuan, but I say Tai, you know, Tai Chi for, you know, it's, I, it's one of those things like, do I pronounce it the way people are going to understand or the way it's really pronounced? Right. Like, do I be pretentious? Or inaccurate. <laughs> you pick. Yeah. But you know, people think Tai Chi, for example, and they think it's this thing that old people do in parks. And it's just kind of this really slow, soft thing. And it can be that. But there actually is a much more martial, aggressive version of it, which I always found really fascinating. And so I was kind of in search of those things, wanted to learn Chinese itself in a more immersed way, which by the way, we can talk about that too. I have lived abroad and I think it's an amazing thing, but it's absolutely not a requirement to immerse yourself in a language to go abroad. 
plane ticket optional, which maybe we come back to that because I think it's a really important topic. We'll come back to that because actually I do want to explore the immersion element, but I don't want to cut you off right now on Taiwan because I'm super curious about this. Yeah. So, so yeah, I found, I did a few, I did some Bagua, I did some Xingyi Twin, and there's also another style called ba, Baji Twin, which was really interesting, but just these very like, they're flowy, but they're super aggressive and like powerful things. And so, you know, I'd go there, there's a few different places. Usually you train like at a temple, like a literal, like, you know, Buddhist temple. They have like the grounds around there. And so it was like a movie set. I mean, you're out there in the beating sun or in the pouring rain doing these movements and, you know, sparring with people. And it was just fantastic. And we talked a little bit before about the kinesthetic component of learning, but learning Mandarin whilst doing physical movements was so powerful because he'd say something, you know, the instructor would say to do something and maybe you wouldn't understand it. Then he'd do it himself or he'd move your body to do it. And then suddenly you, boom, you make that connection. Oh, he said to do that. So you're learning verbs, you're learning commands, you're learning, you know, physical parts of the body and things that, you know, trying to memorize it again, as like on a piece of paper or a flashcard, it would never stick. But he says at one time in the right context with, you know, the smells and the sounds and the sights and it sticks right away. That was super cool. The food there is amazing. It's cheap as chips. It's just, yeah, it's super delicious. Yeah. Taiwan has this really interesting blend. You've got the mainland Chinese influences. You've got Japanese influences historically, you know, Taiwan was basically owned for lack of a better word by Japan from the late 1800s all the way through the end of World War II. You've got the native Aboriginal cultures, you know, mixed in there. Linguistically, it's super fascinating. Um, I don't know if you know Mike Campbell, founder of Glossica, but he he lives in Taiwan and he he's documented and learned a lot of like the indigenous languages of, of Taiwan, which are completely unrelated to Chinese. These are their these are it's quite a thing um, to study. Yeah. He's really he's yeah, I, I mean, I'm a language nerd, but he like takes it to a whole other level. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so practical. I'm like, I'm going through my languages to learn like, what's the best bang from my buck? Like, how many people can I speak to in the world? How's this going to like affect my life, you know, and my family's life? That's what I'm doing. I'm the same. Yeah. Which is why I don't want to learn like made up languages like Klingon or Elvish or something like that. It's like, it's, that's not why I'm doing it. Ooh, I am going to do an episode on Esperanto coming up in the in the next month or so. I, I have opinions about that too. We can so well. Benny Lewis, I'm sure you know from Fluent Three Months, he advocates learning Esperanto as your first foreign language because it's so much simpler, and so you can build confidence. You know, not so much because of using Esperanto itself. I mean, there are there's quite a few people that do speak it, and so it it does have some advantages in that way, but. Look, practically speaking, more people speak English and I already speak that language. So it's like, why, why bother? Or Mandarin. It's like, oh, I can speak to one sixth of the world <laughs> or more. One fifth maybe is. Yeah. Anyway, I lost my train. Pull me back. Okay. So we're talking about Taiwan and your experiences there, but more than that, the languages and why you thought that that was an interesting thing to study opposed to being on mainland China and the differences between uh, studying that alphabet opposed, like the traditional opposed to modern Chinese script. Right. Yeah. So there were, I think there was a number of factors that happened and some of this was just random bad luck, a confluence of things, but it, 
mainland China, and again, I have many mainland Chinese friends. I, I visit often, like I, I have a lot of love and respect, but for me, for my personality and what I was looking for, it just wasn't quite the right fit. I think like you, I'm, I'm very libertarian and wanting to have complete autonomy in doing what I want, when I want, how I want it. China doesn't work very well. That's not really the truth. <laughs> no, no, that's, there was a lot of uh, so That's the funny thing. Like everybody's like, you know, you're so libertarian. You're so outspoken libertarian. And you marry a woman from China. I was like, yeah, but I love her. Like, I mean, like. I, I, it's that yin yang again, right? You have the two opposites coming together to make a beautiful whole. You need, you need opposite. You need you know, the polls. Oh, and I'm so extreme in so many things in my life. My wife is the most calm down to earth. Like, I mean, I've dated women before who were like as crazy as me. Wow. What a toxic, I mean, horrible experience. Like we just butt heads nonstop. My wife is the opposite. My wife is the sane one. She's calm and gentle and logical and very just relaxed. And I'm the crazy one. Like I'm all over the place. I'm doing a thousand different things at once. So it is that yin yang. If I didn't have her to balance me, oh man, I'd be completely off the deep end. And vice versa. You know, you, I'm sure, bring some excitement, some variety, some... You know, I do for sure. <laughs> maybe maybe two. Yeah. Yeah. We, we just gave birth in Brazil. So yeah, we came Congratulations. Here. Thank you very way. much. Our second child, birth tourism in Brazil. That's during a pandemic. That is pretty random. Hashtag birth tourism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's great. So I wanted to ask you about the learning Japanese script because once again, with my wife, she's doing it in, with our daughter, we have a, we have a five-year-old daughter. She's doing it in what I would describe as rote. Like she, that's how they learned how to do it when she was a child in China. And I mean, China's not, we could have a whole conversation about is China communist, is China not communist or how it functions. Regardlessly, they have a certain method in their State schools. State-controlled capitalism is what yeah, I would there say. there you go. Yes. Exactly. Okay, so we don't have to have a whole conversation about it because I think we already understand it, uh, at a different level. I'm picking up what you're putting down. Exactly, exactly. My point is, though, that she is used to teaching things in the way that she learned it. And to be honest, it is not a great way to do it. And now I'm like, you got to listen to John's podcast. Listen to what he's saying about languages. Listen to what Ollie's saying. Listen, like, I mean, like, yeah. And she's like, no, this is how you need to learn Chinese script. Because I did it this way and look at me. Yeah, exactly. And I know how to write, read and write in Chinese. So. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to argue with. You're, exactly. you're right. You do. Yeah. Uh, and there's a few things I'd say about that. One is just because somebody did something a certain way doesn't mean it's the ideal way, obviously. I would say that native Chinese or Japanese speakers, they learn the characters that way despite the method. You know, eventually, I mean, it's like you, you hit at a wall with a hammer, eventually you're going to break through that wall. Even if there's a better tool, you know, get us smash, you know, what is it called? A uh, wrecking ball. There are better ways to do it, but you can still do it with a tiny little hammer hitting on, or you know, even a finger. You can rub your finger on the wall. And eventually, like in those medieval dungeons where you see the person make a gap in the wall that's three inches deep with their just fingers, it can be done. But why do it that way when there's so many better tools available? So that's that's point one. However, huge caveat here with children. 
the way I advocated earlier using this, remembering the kanji technique or building these creative, crazy stories in your mind, that is much more conducive to the adult brain, the way it works. I'm not saying it's impossible with children, but children have much less life experience to build upon. They still have stories. And so I do think you can still use the story-based approach, the narrative-based approach to go about characters instead of just the rote, but they might have to rely a bit more on rote memorization than would be ideal for an adult. Might have to be a mix of the two. So that's kind of my, my caveat there. I also want to say, I don't think we mentioned this earlier, but I think a lot of people that are not language nerds or linguists, they tend to think about language as this one thing, you know, reading, writing, speaking, listening. It's like, it's all one thing, but really they're two very different things. Listening and speaking are innate human abilities that we evolved to be able to do. You know, it's literally hardwired into our genetic code to acquire whatever language we are exposed around us, listening, speaking, reading, writing, is a human technology. It's an invention. Oh, so good a point. Exactly. Yes. And, and you're not going to naturally acquire reading and writing just from exposure. It takes a whole different kind of thing. It does take education. It does take practice, you know, actual conscious practice. So I just want to keep those two separate because how I advocate learning one is actually very different than the other. Well, because I mean, with our children, we follow what is effectively called an unschooling method. Now, saying that, I will teach my child how to read, write, and spell and basic arithmetic. I believe with those building blocks, with those tools in the toolbox, we will be able to go forward. She will be able to go forward and teach herself the world. Like, I mean, it's anything and everything. I don't need to sit down with her and be like, the longest river in the world is, and you know, and like quiz her on these stuff and, and have her memorize Declarative memory. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And I think to your point, learning how to learn, that's a lifelong skill that she can then apply to anything. But I think even more important than that, I mean, the, the technical how to learn stuff or memorize stuff is cool and it's important, but the most important fundamental thing is a passion for learning, a curiosity for learning. I think if you have that, if you fan that fire, fan those flames from a young age and keep fanning it and fanning it and helping them learn to fan it themselves, then they're unstoppable. And they'll figure out the how later or they'll figure out other stuff. But the problem I have with so much of education, especially again in East Asia, not to beat that dead horse too, but it, I could not think of a better way to put out that flame than the way yeah. things are taught and learned. It's just, not only is it completely... Uh, top-down directorial, you're going to learn this and here's why, and you're going to memorize this. And if you don't pass this test, you're not going to get into this school and then you won't get a good job and then your life's over and then we won't be able to live off you as old people. So <laughs> it's, it's, all, it's this whole like cascade of things, right? Ooh, good tying it back. That's a, that was a good yeah. one. That was fast. But I think that's ultimately what it is. It's like, you know, I, I don't want to die old and poor alone. So you need to study this thing and do good in the test. <laughs> ultimately. And I need you to look good for us. It's a lot of, we didn't get into that earlier, but I think, again, with kind of a, from the ego perspective, it's like living vicariously through your children too, and having them do things that make you proud, which anyway, that's a whole other. Well, I think it's hilarious that I dropped out of school when I was 12 years old and I go on and read a hundred books a year and have for 20 some odd years. And now I look at all my buddies who went through school and college and university and master's and PhD, 
and they never picked up another book in their life. I mean, it's just like, I did not have the desire to learn and to self-educate beat out of me as a child. And therefore it's not gone. Therefore I keep doing it. Therefore, I mean, I'm just, I, I'm a polymath. I have interest in so many different things and I'm an expert in so many different things. And for me, you have that passion. that's why. And you, exactly. And you had the freedom to do it the way you want. Yeah, exactly. 100%. So with my daughter, that's the same type of thing. I mean, interest-based learning. That's why we are currently developing a high school, an online high school with one of the greatest minds in the United States for curriculum development. He's opened something like 20 to 30 Montessori schools in the United States. Oh, wow. And I'm business partnering with him to do a special program for expat and international families for high school students, for kids. And it will be tons of interest-based learning. It will take a lot of things from the homeschooling and unschooling movement. He described it to me on one of our first meeting is unschooling by professionals. And I was like, yes, that's it. There's that yin yang again, right? You've got the, you, you have the structure and the experience of somebody that knows the, the, the space and knows the, the boundaries and the limitations but then the, the ethos of the kind of the unschooling, you know, it's the order of chaos again, coming together. I love it. Well, if you guys need any free advice on the foreign language curricula, let me know. I'd be happy to. Foreign languages will be a massive part of the program because, but it will be the, the bang for your buck that we were talking about before. It will be big focus in Spanish, in Mandarin, in, you know, languages that are really going to help children throughout their life. Like, I don't think we're going to be studying any of the really rare languages that are out there. I mean, it's bang for your buck. Who, how can you speak to the most amount of people and advance your career? I, I will say one small counterpoint, just to tie in what we're talking about, about passion and, and freedom and following your bliss around what you want to learn. I do think mandating learning a specific language, though it makes sense practically, we, there will be no mandating in the entire school, so don't worry about that. I'll, I'll cut you off in advance. The, the things that we're going to try to offer are going to be things that will help you as an entrepreneur throughout your life, where if you come to us and say, like, I want to study Welsh, I think Welsh is just so super cool and I'm super interested. Well, awesome. I mean, we will help support you in your journey. I mean, I don't know how to speak Welsh, but someone does. So we will help get those types of tutors for you and, and drive that forward. But yeah, it's that support structure for kids on the interest-based learning that I think is, is going to be really important. Because you need both. And I think kind of to tie it back to the immersion stuff, I do advocate what I call self-guided immersion or anywhere immersion because it really is possible. Like you, we can get to that in a second. Like you really can build an immersion environment, which is maybe not as good as being in the country, but it's pretty darn close. Good enough. It's like a minimum viable immersion environment. It, it really can be done today with all the technology we have. But going back to the, the passion thing, I, I do think being able to choose what language you want to learn and how you learn it is such an important part of sticking with it. And again, going back to the East Asian language education part of it, people don't have a choice about learning English. It's like, you're going to learn English. You have to, and you're going to learn it this way. It's like two strikes against what otherwise could have been a beautiful opportunity. Just imagine if they were said, okay, you can pick of these five languages or these three languages, and you can even decide how you go about it. You just have to be able to, at the end of the three years or whatever, you're going to have a verbal interview 
to test your communicative ability. Now, you can decide between here and there how you want to get there. Here's a buffet of options you can choose from. Yeah, recommendations. Yep. You know, here's some resource. Here's a resource library that we recommend. Yeah. And yeah, and what I think with the program that we're going to be doing is we want to have a lot of guest speakers and mentors and things. This is how we did it. You know, I'm not mandating you have to do it this way, but it's like here. I, our guest speaker this week is John Fotheringham, and he learned Japanese, and this is how he went about it. And tell your story. Show me any type of public education program which has a world-class experts come in on a regular basis to talk about their life experiences. I mean, it just doesn't happen. It's like you get a textbook and this is the facts, and now we need to memorize the facts. And it's like, oh, yeah, rough. says who? Yeah, who's, exactly. Who's, yeah, who's facts? <laughs> Okay, before we jump into the immersion, when you were in Taiwan and you were learning Chinese, did you go straight to traditional characters or did you use pinging or anything like that? So I did rely on pinging in the very beginning to learn the pronunciation. Taiwan actually has another system, which is called Bopomofo or Chu Yin, which is a different phonetic system to capture the pronunciation of all the characters. It actually uses little chunks of Chinese Is it still Latin-based or? Oh, it's No, Chinese? it's not Latin. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's kind of, you can you can Google it. It's just, yeah, B-O-P-O-M-O-F-O, Bopomofo. If you Google that, you'll, you'll see what it looks like. But yeah, not Latin-based. I would say for most people, probably Pinyin is a safe choice. There's much more available in terms of materials and resources that are, that have the Pinyin and also the, we should say Pinyin is Latin letters with little diacritic marks for the tones that tell you how to pronounce Chinese. So it's a great way to, to start. If you can learn how you pronounce these, these, I don't know what they're called, the, the accents and the diphthongs and everything like this, I think that's the right word. You can actually read Chinese and it sounds somewhat correct. You have absolutely no idea what you're saying, but you can literally read Chinese. And I mean, I learned how to read this and I would meet Chinese friends and I'd read whole paragraphs and they'd be killing themselves laughing because they could actually understand what I was saying. And I would not know one word of the meaning. Like I would just have no idea. And I guess that's kind of a point to your, your, your comment about technology language, uh, reading and writing is technology and speaking and listening and understanding is human. I mean, it's genetic. And because of that, the order of operations is really important. And so I always advocate start with listening then speaking, then reading, then writing. That's kind of, that's the natural order of acquisition. Now, is that for all languages? Do you recommend that? Or is that specifically for East languages that Eastern Asian languages that don't use a Latin alphabet? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I have some caveats and then caveats off caveats for it. Ooh, but okay, let's do just it. Just in general, yes, I think for all languages, that's the ideal order. In reality though, that's the theory. In practical reality, it's not possible to separate things out that neatly, you know, especially as an adult learner, you're going to want to start reading stuff right away. And so you're probably going to be listening and reading, or you'll be reading and listening and then trying to speak a little here and then writing a little here. Like it's going to be a big jumbled mess. But I think just in terms of like overarching meta narrative, you want to think of it in that order. The reason I highlight that is because people tend to do the exact opposite, especially in, again, go back to East Asia, they'll read, 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 and not listen and not speak. And so a lot of people in Japan, for example, or China or Korea, 
they can read quite well. I mean, they can actually read pretty advanced stuff. But if you were to pronounce that same stuff to them out loud. Yeah, or they read it aloud. Yeah, they have no idea. Yeah, or, or if they tried to read it aloud, they wouldn't be able to pronounce the words properly. You know, and, and even native speakers, you'll have this experience sometimes where you'll catch yourself saying a word out loud you've never said, but you've only read. Yeah. And then people That's kind of trippy. look at you <laughs> like, like when I used to say hyperbole and people like, oh, hyperbole. Yeah, right. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never heard it. I'd only read it. Yeah. Uh, so you want to try to avoid that mistake by at the very least, make sure that you find the audio version of something you're reading. Get those two together. That's a really, really powerful combo. So if you can find a book, for example, in both like Kindle format and Audible format, and then you can use WhisperSync, and then you can listen, you can read, you can listen, you can read. That's a really, really slick way to avoid that kind of problem and strengthen both your listening and your reading skills. So all these books we mentioned earlier, same thing. Like I love all these story books. You can get the audio, you can get the the print version and, and those two together. It's like killer combo. Yeah. And you guys should check out if you guys go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash languages, all these got some deals and some really great courses that you guys should check out. I've found with my languages, like I certainly focused on speaking and listening. And then I got into reading. My spelling is still atrocious. Like, I mean, I can read stuff in Spanish, but I'm like, when I turn around and go to, you know, text message my my friends and things like that. I'm like my spelling. It's like, I'm still spelling things in an English way of how I think it should be spelled. And then if I put it in Google translate, it like does not even recognize it. Like it's just so different. Yeah. I, I think that's very common. This is actually a problem of passive uh, knowledge versus active ability. So when you read something, Passive, you can recognize it very easily. But then if you were to turn around and try to actively spell it out loud, it's a very different thing. I mean, this is true in our native language of English, right? There's many words you recognize on the page, no problem. But then when you go to try to spell it, you know, this is the teacher phenomenon. When you're at the board trying to write something, you're like, oh, wait, how do you spell that word? <laughs> is it an I or an A? Like, I don't remember. Yeah, very, very common. Um, but I also think it's a testament to the percentages of practice you've had. Most people get much more practice reading than writing. Most people get much more practice listening than speaking. It's the active skills that tend to get short shrift. Again, because they're scary and they're messy. And they open you up to making mistakes in front of other people, which again, go back to evolution, tying that in, we evolved a extreme fear of being ostracized from the tribe because that meant death. You were, you know, this idea of the lone survivor in the woods, you know. Yes, you know, we, we serve, nope, we, we evolved to be these tightly knit bands of interconnected people. And it's deep in our genetic code, this fear of making mistakes or looking stupid in front of other people. But again, to succeed in today's world, you have to override that fear. You have to break through what Stephen Pressfield calls the resistance, right? And get to that other side. You got to speak, you got to write, you got to make mistakes, you got to make a fool of yourself have fun with it. I mean, people always think kids are better language learners than adults. I call BS red flag. Adults are actually much faster, much better, but the things kids have that we don't typically, they don't fear making mistakes. They just have a go. They play. Well, I would add one other thing to that. Okay. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a son. I own my own business. I produce podcasts. I have 10,000 things on my plate. My daughter's five years old. 
she, I'm like, baby, what'd you do today? She's like, play. I'm like, well, what else do you do? Play, play. And then I played and then I ate and then I played and then I played. So, I mean, we have a Spanish only speaking niñera, a nanny for her. She only speaks Spanish. Well, guess what? My daughter gets a ton of time speaking and listening Spanish all day long, five, six, seven hours. She doesn't have to cook dinner. She doesn't have to make sales calls or produce content. I mean, she plays in a, lang- in a new language and she's picked it up so fast. So in that regard, I think that children have an advantage over adults, but I think that adults can find opportunities in their life to put more language in. And that I think is a good segue. That's the segue I've been looking for this whole episode. Okay. Immersion. Let's do it. Okay. Yeah. Great. Great segue. Great transition. Hats off. And that was by accident, by the way. That was like, that just fell into You know, place. some people call it accident. Others call it genius intellect. You know, you, you pick whatever you want. Experienced interviewer. Yes. Yeah. So, so that's kind of the, the main part of the method that I've sort of shackled together over years and years and years of making lots of mistakes, doing things in ways I no longer advocate or would wish upon my worst enemy, learning linguistics, reading lots of books, trying experiments, meeting other polyglots and, you know, in my podcast, interviewing the best language learners in the world who way better than me. Legit the best. Yeah. I'm, I, I am like, I cower in their presence. These guys are just absolutely impressive. You know, I've learned a few languages. Some of these guys have learned dozens to pretty high levels. So what's the one guy you had on? He's like, he learned like 15 languages and he's Richard Simcott link. No link. Oh, uh, Steve. Oh, uh, Steve Kaufman. Yeah. Whoa. I listened to his episode on your podcast. I was like, this is nuts. Like this is insane. I've never, I was so shocked. And even more impressive with Steve, quick tangent, he's learned most of his languages in his 50s, 60s, and 70s. I think he's now in his 80s. So this idea that like, oh, I'm too old to learn a language. Yeah, BS. Yeah. So false belief pattern that people have that, oh, I can only learn languages when I'm a child. As an adult, I'm too old. I mean, this guy destroys that. Yeah, like, I don't know what it was. I think it was like 15 languages and to quite a high level and started at... Yeah, 50 years old or something. Amazing. And again, going back to the passion, that's it. He has the passion. He loves it. And that's actually, we talked a little about this earlier, but the methods, the specific tactical stuff is all over the map for these people I've interviewed. The one common thread that connects all of them is just this raving, lunatic level passion for languages, which, you know, some people say, oh, I don't have the language gene or I don't, it's like, again, BS, you're, speaking a language now. So obviously you have the gene. What you probably don't have yet is the passion, but you can, you can create the passion. You know, you can find things that, that excite you in the language. You know, like going back to martial arts, for example, if you want to learn a martial art, just do it in another language. Go, if you can go to the country, great. If not find a local, you know, teacher, maybe that speaks that language and then just do it in that language or gardening, underwater basket weaving. I don't care what it is. You can learn the language through the thing. Well, I think for a lot of people, they, as you said before, with Japanese, it was because of manga and stuff like this that they fell in love with this style of storytelling. And it was like, maybe it wasn't even available in English, you know, at the time. 
So if they wanted to consume this content, then they had to do it in Japanese. Like I have a Portuguese friend, a very, very dear friend of mine. I don't think she's ever been to Japan, but she speaks fluent Japanese. And that's because she just like, she's such a nerd and she just devours this stuff like crazy. Which is immersion. So pulling myself back again from my tangent off a tangent. I love the tangents, by the way. Don't, don't worry about that. Tangents are great. <laughs> I always joke to people that the, the, the language mastery show should be called the tangent show because it's just tangential tangents off tangents, but it's the good stuff, right? So, so yeah, I really believe if you have the passion, if, if you have that as a starting point that you actually really want to learn a language, then where you live is not really that critical. Again, obviously, is it advantageous to learn Japanese in Japan? Of course. Are you going to have, is it going to make it easier to immerse yourself 24 seven, like your daughter being around the Spanish speaking nannies? Yes, of course. But it's not a requirement. And as you said, as grownups, as adults, we have jobs, we have other responsibilities. It's not everyone can just pick up and, and move to another country, though I think it is easier than a lot of people realize. And listening to your show, they're going to get a lot of tips to do just that. So Exactly. And that's what we're all about is giving people the inspiration and the tips and the tricks. And I mean, okay, the tips and the tricks are one thing, but I mean, the inspiration and the, the understanding that literally anybody can do these types of things, I think is so super important. But even if somebody is going to move abroad, I say, why not start immersing yourself before you go? Because then you can hit the ground running. And that's what I had with Japanese, unlike with Mandarin Chinese. You know, I had already immersed myself. I'd already started reading, listening, speaking, and writing in the States. So when I got to Japan, I had enough of the wind behind my back that I could start communicating and engaging. Again, not without effort, not perfectly, far from, but enough. Whereas with Mandarin Chinese, I had a tiny, tiny bit. I could read a fair amount because of the Japanese similarity in characters, but in terms of speaking, I had almost none. And so I had to kind of start from scratch in the country which could totally be done, but I think it's advantageous for a lot of reasons, both cultural, linguistic, and practical, to arrive with a modicum of ability first. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I'll give you one very key practical reason why. If you go to a foreign country and you don't speak any of the language, you are naturally going to be quite lonely and you're going to want to make friends. And if you make a lot of friends and you don't speak the local language, all your friends are going to be expats, extranjeros. Expat bubble. Now, yeah. yeah, and you get into this group, this bubble. I certainly, it has happened to me many, 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 many times. And I have friends in Panama right now who have been there three, four, five times as long as I have and can barely get by. Like, I mean, maybe they can order their coffee and, you know, a chicken dinner or something like that. But that's it. And all they know are other expats. If you learn the foreign language beforehand, at least you can start to make local friends and to get along and you have a chance of not being trapped in that expat bubble. That will give you a completely different experience. And it sounds to me with your experience in Japan, you certainly had that. You got to meet local friends right off the bat. For lack of option too. Yeah, for lack of option. Yeah, but I mean, also, if you had gone to, okay, I'm, I'm going to speculate here, but if you had gone to Japan and you did not speak one word of English, you would have found, if you had not spoke one word of Japanese, you would have found the other English speaker in your town and that person would have been your best friend. 100%. And, and of course, I did have expat friends in other cities and we would get together once in a while and commiserate. And I think that's healthy. I think it's good to have a little pressure release valve 
once in a while. Yeah, and felt you know you have other non-natives you can commiserate with about certain things that you're struggling with or are, are frustrating you. But as long as that's not the norm, that should be the exception. And I'm going to pull this back again. I'm going to try to imitate your masterful segue skills. So the danger of going abroad and living in an expat bubble is you're not going to get exposure to the language, even though you're living abroad. It's like, what's the point? You've gone all this way and you're just still getting only English exposure and talking to other people that have the same values and ethics and historical cultural background as you. The beauty though is you can invert that. Even in your home country, you can create a foreign bubble around yourself wherever you go. Okay. So what would that look like? What would that look like? So here's the foreign bubble. Here's the recipe. So at the top level, and I'm stealing this from Katsumoto, who runs this site, all Japanese all the time. It's not active anymore, but there's a huge backlog of articles and he's hilarious. I really like his approach. The, the key thing is you want to look around and make sure that as much as you can, everything that you are hearing, seeing, tasting, touching, writing, connecting with is in the target language as much as you can. So practically speaking, what does that look like? Change the device language on your smartphone, on your computer, on your Apple TV. Yeah. Talk about making yourself uncomfortable. That already gives me <laughs> anxiety. And I will say this is probably more of like an intermediate level change. Absolute beginner probably is going to be a bit rough. You can do it, especially if you already really know the interface of your devices and you know where things live. You can start to, to do it probably in a language like Spanish too, or something like that, where it's still Latin letters. You can do it a little earlier. Something like Japanese or Chinese, you're going to need to know some characters already. Yeah. Sometimes I have to use my wife's phone to get something done and it's all in Chinese. And I'm like, not only is it an apple, so I, that's already a foreign language for me. Then you put an apple in Chinese and I'm like, oh my God, this is, where's the camera? <laughs> How do I message mom? <laughs> But that's a good one because that's, I mean, most people that you're on your device throughout the day, all day. So you're getting this brilliant, contextual, meaningful exposure. If you know like, oh, I know that that menu item in English is that, and now I'm seeing it in the target language, you start to learn vocabulary and context. So that could be really powerful. Making sure that all the podcasts that are in your queue are in the target language. All of your watch next things on Netflix are in the target language. Make the target language the default make it automatic. Don't keep choosing to immerse yourself in the target language. Make it automatic. Make English the choice. That's intense. I can, I can see how powerful this would be. Like, oh, I have to go out of my way to find English. Yeah, it's hard. I'm, this is definitely not easy or automatic, but that's why you have to make it easy and automatic. You know, create red carpets. I forget who said this analogy, but you want to make red carpets to the target language and you want to have velvet ropes between you and English. So you can get to it, you know, you can change your device back to English in five seconds, but it should be something you have to do like consciously, but the target language should be the automatic thing everywhere you go stack, you know, foreign comic books on the toilet, make sure that your bedside book is a novel in that foreign language. I always heard of people doing like, post-it notes and they put post-it notes all around their house. Yeah. For me, this never really, I mean. No, I think it's a bit, I think the time, go back to the Anki conversation. Ooh, that's one point. I think the, yeah, I think the time involved to do that is probably not worth the, the bother. This is why I think it's not worth a bother. I mean, if I put a post-it note somewhere to remind me how to do something, 
I mean, yeah, I'll see it the first time and the second time. And then the third time, I mean, it just becomes part of the background. Yeah, it's just like... 100%. I think a really practical, quick, easy alternative to that, DK, the publisher, have these great picture books that have just page after page after page of different contexts and places. And they'll have all these photographs of different objects and things with the word in English and then the word in the foreign language. They even have one that has five languages, which is super cool for you budding polyglots out there. And that's that can provide the same benefit. You could just kind of do like one page a day and kind of go, okay, that's that, that's that. Don't try to memorize it. Again, just, just read through it, peruse it over and over and over. And then you start to kind of let it seep into your, your vocabulary at a subconscious level. Other things, try to connect specific activities in your day with a specific language skill or practice time. So technically this is called language or habit stacking. So whenever you brush your teeth, you know, listen to X podcast. Whenever you take a walk, you know, you always listen to an audiobook in the foreign language. When you, when you get home from work, before you do anything else, you watch, you know, one episode of a foreign, whatever it is, you just, you connect a specific time, place, or context with a specific language activity. I was with, I had someone on the show recently and we were discussing language learning for children. And they said, if your child wants to do a new activity, for example, horseback riding or gymnastics or something like that, find the instructor for that sport in the foreign language. So it's like, all right, baby, you want to go to gymnastics? Well, gymnastics is in Russian. And so that's it. I'm like, that is a cool idea. I think that's really neat and something, I mean, in this conversation, we were talking specifically about language learning for children, but I could see doing the exact same thing as an adult. If like you said, for martial arts, I mean, if you know, you go to martial arts three times a week, well, your instructor is from China or from Japan and that's the way it's done. And that's the way it's done. So it's like, if you want to continue on with this, and it means something to you, well, then you better get up to speed really faster. You're going to get hit. And it's fun. And again, you have that physical component, which helps, you know, dance, I think is another great thing. If you want to learn like salsa, you know, en espanol, why not? I mean, what a beautiful way to go. Yeah. There's so much. And, you know, going to restaurants, for example, most cities of a certain size are going to have at least a few restaurants, probably with somebody from another country that works at whether the staff or the cook or whatever. Quick warning though, a lot of sushi restaurants, for example, at least here in the United States are not actually Japanese staff. So you got to be careful and be respectful. Don't assume just because, you know, they look like they're of Asian descent that they speak Japanese. They're probably Filipino or something. Yeah. Usually Korean, Korean or Chinese, at least here in the US. And it makes sense. I mean, you can, you can charge more money for Japanese food for various reasons than Korean or Chinese food, which I think is unfair. I think Korean food's amazing. I think Chinese food's amazing. I think you should all, well, I'm glad it's cheap because I love it, but <laughs> they should, they should all be able to charge the same. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Another conversation. Okay. So any insights from you on the amount of hours, amount of time it takes for someone to start to see results, to get to different levels? Like what, what's your thought, feeling, experience, insights on this? It's very nuanced. So, and it, it, it's so funny because a lot of the arguments, I don't try to get in arguments online because that's a fruitless path. But earlier on in my blogging career, I would sometimes engage with people and have, I, I thought there'd be debates, but they would devolve into ad hominem attacks and things from their side, of course, you know, 
So there's two things when you're learning a language or any skill that is like a very complex biopsychosocial undertaking, like a language or a sport or a martial art. The first goal is not actually learning the thing. The first goal is developing the habit that will teach you the thing. Those are very, very different things. And so when you start in a language, for example, I advocate a tiny, tiny minimum viable habit in the very beginning, something like five minutes a day, something tiny, 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 because your goal then is to develop that habit of no matter what, no matter what happens in my day, whether I have a super hard day at work, I get the flu, I have a fight with my spouse, whatever, no matter what happened, your kid gets sick, five minutes, anybody can find five minutes in their day. You do that for a few weeks, a few months, whatever it takes to develop that habit where you get a, you know, it's the Seinfeld thing I heard about where he puts the X on the calendar, you develop that streak, and then you don't want to break the streak. So that's your first goal. Don't break the streak. Develop that habit. It's part of your identity. I am a person who does not miss my five minutes of language study. Get that super dialed in. Then you then start adding that time because obviously five minutes a day, you're not going to get fluent before the end of time. Yeah. It's going to be hard to, and that's, and that's where people get confused. Yeah. It's just not enough time. It's not enough. Exp- You'd have to live for thousands of years for, for that to add up to enough exposure time. But, and this is where people miss, I think, misunderstand the advice is they think I'm advocating five minutes a day forever and that that will get you fluent. It's like, no, 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 of course not. Yeah. Five minutes a day jump- of Duolingo is not going to make you fluent in another language. But it might develop the habit that eventually will. That's that's where the nuance is. And I actually, I, we talk about Duolingo too. A lot of people like to m- make fun of Duolingo or beat it up. And I have actually an article on my blog saying why Duolingo won't get you fluent, but why you should use it anyway. And is it for this reason? Because again, it goes back to habits. Yeah. It's because it's like, it's a fantastic anchor habit I found because it's so gamified and so fun and so addictive, it can create that anchor. And then from there, I call it a habit halo. You know, you then maybe are more likely to do the other things, which will actually get you fluent, like reading, like listening, like speaking, like writing. And I've tested this for myself. When I consistently do Duolingo, I'm more likely to then talk to my iTalkie tutor, for example. I'm more likely to watch something on Netflix. And then if I cut out, because I'll get to that point, like, why am I wasting my time with this stupid game? And I'll cut out the Duolingo and then everything else falls apart because I lose my anchor. I lose that little dopamine producing habit anchor. Serotonin, yeah. Yep. So, so that's the, yeah. So rule one, step one, develop the habit, then start gradually expanding it. And I would say the minimum amount, if you really want to make tangible progress in a, in a reasonable amount of time is an hour. Hour a day. One hour a day. That's kind of, that's like the minimum, minimum viable habit for, for getting to fluency. And you just want to make sure that that hour then, like you said, we have busy lives. We don't have all day to immerse ourselves like the kids do. You got to make sure you're packing that hour with as much direct, meaningful practice and exposure as possible. This is where like, okay, do the five minutes of the Duolingo, maybe for the habit's sake, but then put the app away. Get out your, get out your book, put in your earbuds for the podcast, you know, write notes by hand get on italki or some other site and actually talk to somebody, practice what you learned from your reading and your listening activities, ask them questions, you know, say, what does this mean? Or how do you say this? Or have them correct you and write in the notes in Skype or wherever you're practicing. Okay. You said this, but actually you should say this, get that written record. If you want to use flashcards, take that content, 
put it into your Anki flashcards. So it's hyper-focused, specific, tailored practice for you, not just some generic deck you downloaded off the internet. For sure. See, I'm I'm an I'm an italki junkie. I mean, I've spent thousands on italki, and I mean, if you guys haven't used it before, go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash italk i check it out i mean it's a language marketplace where you can find tutors in any in every language in the entire world and for me this was fantastic and it's so cheap it's so cheap for for what it is it should cost more i'm again i'm glad it doesn't but it it's so valuable yeah, yeah. I pay $6 an hour for a Spanish tutor, and we talk bullshit for an hour about every random thing. I talk about my kids, I talk about my work, I learn about different cultures and their problems they're having in university, and some girl's problem with her boyfriend, and it's like, it's just normal, real life. I, I love it. I think that's uh, a brilliant way to cram pack that hour, and an hour is... At this moment in my life, that's what I'm doing. I'm doing an hour a day. Fantastic. Because an hour a day is way more than zero a day. Yeah. <laughs> and again, when your life throws your curveballs, if you have to fall back to that five minutes on any given day, awesome. The goal here, and this is the, I think James Clear, I think I borrowed this from, no zero days. That should be your mantra, no zero days. Meaning like if everything does hit the fan, I'm still going to get those five minutes. Maybe it's not that hour. And I know I'm not getting fluent on that day, but I'm keeping the habit alive and I'm keeping the identity alive of a person that does that thing. And that is so, so, so important. Like, I think even when we, the week that we gave birth, I think we took, I think I took maybe one week off of Spanish and then I was right back in it. I mean, I was back at studying Spanish before I was back to work uh, on my business you know, because it's so important. Yeah, but I do, I do think that having some type of an anchor in your life, like the five minutes that you're saying, uh, especially at the very beginning, can be massively beneficial for someone um, before they develop that habit. Because, well, that's how they develop the habit, is making it a, an absolute, a truth that they will have this in their life. Yeah, and it's, it's the marginal gains concept. It's, you know, it's interesting because I, as a person, my tendency, I tend to be like all or nothing on things. And I, I tend to want to jump into the deep end and do things right away. And that I know that's who I am. And so I do, I do think honoring that is, is wise for me to know, like for a lot of things, like incremental changes aren't actually very effective for me. But I think this is one case where it's better to start small and build upon it. Because usually it's kind of like with dietary change too, which is a whole other world I can talk about, but trying to like completely change how you eat, for example, could be too big of a jump for a lot of people. They need, they need an incremental change. You need to add in, for example, the new healthy foods first, and then start taking out the, the unhealthy ones instead of just taking it all out and jumping right in. Because for most people, it's too hard and they'll quit. They'll, they'll get a few days in and go, okay, this is, this is just not sustainable. It's too hard. For most people trying to do, start with an hour of language study which isn't that much, but going from zero to an hour is a lot. Well, especially if you frame it as study. Like, I mean, to your point, if you went like, if you swapped it, like I'm going to sit down and I'm going to watch some Netflix, but you swap it instead of watching something in English, you watch it in Japanese or French or whatever. 
you're still getting the activity and the feeling of relaxation and, and entertainment that, I mean, people crave entertainment, arguably too much entertainment in the world right now, but you're just changing the language. It's like, you're not adding anything and you're not really taking anything away. It's that swap. Uh, I think that also really helps too. And going back to the immersion bubble we talked about, you have an hour of kind of dedicated, concentrated language dose coming at you, which is ideal. It doesn't have to be all at once. You can break this up into chunks. That's fine. Make 30 minutes first thing in the morning, 30 minutes before bed is actually a really powerful combo. You get kind of the language sandwich around your day. And our brains are really good at consolidating what we've learned during the day while we sleep. So stuff you learn right before bed, it's more likely to get encoded than stuff you learn other times of the day. It's a little pro tip. But also there's all that other peripheral time scrolling through your phone. If your phone's in the target language, right? You're going to get that little bits. And those little scraps of time can actually add up. So even if you only have an hour of dedicated time, you might be getting two or three hours of passive exposure kind of stitched together, depending on how you engineer your life. Okay. Do you, have you ever seen in your life, in your experience, that there's any type of, any point where you have diminishing returns, where you went and you studied so much, but at a certain point, it's like your brain is just like done, like just I'm done. Like <laughs> I want to, I, I, I want to go back to something that I don't have to think about. Yeah. I think five hours seems to be about that time. And that's total. I would say for active skills, like speaking, usually like an hour or two, you start to kind of, especially when you're earlier on in the language, you kind of, you, your brain feels like it's overheating and you kind of, you get to you get to a point where you're not really learning much more. You're just, you know, running on fumes. So, so I'd say, yeah, an hour is the minimum ideal, but I would say practically speaking, like two, three hours is kind of probably the upper end of where you're like really going to see a lot of returns, you know, and that's not impossible, even for a busy person. If you engineer your life, right. And I think you make, if you make language, your priority, you could get three hours in, you get an hour first thing in the morning, an hour during lunch, and then an hour before bed or something. Right. Most people watch that much TV every day. So definitely. I mean, I know so many people that watch six hours, seven hours of TV from the moment they finish work until the moment they go to bed. I mean, the TV's on. So that goes to my point of too much entertainment in the world and it's not enough other stuff. Just I switch mean. it. Just switch the entertainment, switch the addiction to being addicted to doing it in a foreign language. Video games, for example, that's a huge untapped resource. I'm not really a gamer, so I didn't really do that. But I, 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 again, like how I got into manga and anime because of Japanese, I've thought about getting a game system to play games in Japanese or Chinese because it's such rich, especially now with the interactive stuff. Like it's a, I think it's a really powerful tool and it's inherently addictive. And so you can let, you know, those engineers have learned how to hijack your reward center to keep you playing the game. Cool. You know, use that, <laughs> take that, take that otherwise nasty unauthorized hijacking of your, your brain. Yeah. And this is another point for the kids. If your kid is addicted to video games and you're trying to find something else, turn around and swap the language on it, on the, for them <laughs> and make them. I mean, I, I swap my daughters. I bought her a tablet because, you know, I'm a human. And, you know, if you have young children, I mean, tablet is a magical device and just helps it is. in so many ways. 
I swapped hers to Spanish and she doesn't know how to change it back. So if she wants to watch cartoons, she's watching them in Spanish and that's it. I mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> I love that. I, a quick side note on that. I, I helped take care of my nephew for a couple of years. And when I first went down there, I, I said, I'm not going to be Netflix nanny. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it one weekend. It's like, all right, what do I watch next kid? It's like, <laughs> he's just, <laughs> it's a practical reality that, you know, if you want to, as you say, if you want to actually run a business or have a modicum of a, a life, then it's going to happen. No judgment. Absolutely. Brilliant. John, I love today's conversation. I'm sure we could keep going forever and ever, but let's save the rest of the conversation for another time. Let's get you back on the show. Everybody, if you want to learn languages and not just learn languages, but I mean, the really in-depth techniques for how to learn literally anything, you guys need to check out John's show. I'm a big fan of your work, John. I think it's you do such an excellent job. If my listeners do want to check it out, if they want to find out more about what you do, where can we send them? Yeah, so my main online home is languagemastery.com. And for the podcast specifically, it's just languagemastery.com slash show. Like you mentioned earlier, I have a free email course as well, which is right there on the homepage. You can opt in. It's seven days, kind of a drip little email course, little bite-sized morsels of, of language learning goodness you get in your inbox for seven days in a row. And then I send out a month or a weekly newsletter every Monday, Language Mastery Monday, with cool tips and tools and resources that I've I found useful, links to new blog posts, things like that. Yeah, that's it. it yeah. Likewise, you, you do such a great job what you do. And I just, I'm honored to be on the show amongst many folks that I consider heroes of mine. So I, yeah, I'm flattered to be in their company. Well, you well-deserved my friend, well-deserved. I'm a big fan of your work and no, you, you belong for sure. John, amazing conversation. As I said, thank you so much for your time today. I know that we went over, I mentioned to John, anytime I have someone on that, we talk about languages it goes twice as long as every other episode. And without fail, I think we've just hit two hours. So John, on that note, thank you very much. I will talk to you soon, my friend. Thank you so much. I want to remind you that if you go to expatmoneyshow.com, you're going to be able to download our special report. It's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. It has been a project of mine I have been working on for maybe four years now, and I constantly update this with the newest and best strategies. Now, it's really different than a lot of other special reports or books out there because this one is really short, and it is short on purpose. What I want to do is kind of highlight to you the best of the best strategies that are out there in the world, and then where you can go for additional information or how you can get involved in these things. So instead of writing a 500-page special report on this, which probably chances are no one is going to read it, this is really highly condensed information. I've actually put it in an infographic. It's an infographic special report. Uh, it has helped thousands upon thousands of people really get a grasp of being an expat and what type of things are out there to protect your assets, professionals that you should be working with, investments, real estate, these types of things. So it's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. You can pick it up at 
expatmoneyshow.com. You'll see it. It's on the very first page at the very top. All you need to do is put in your name and email address. You're going to get a chance to actually join my private email list, EMS Pulse. And there's just so much great things that are shared on there. It's completely free. There's no funnel. There's no trick to this. There's no credit card needed, anything like that. It's just a good resource for you, my listener, who I love and adore. And I want to do right by you guys. So go to expatmoneyshow.com, pick this up. Let me know what you think. I'll talk to you soon. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.